You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And you're tuned to Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening radius on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. Aquaculture has been a part of human society for eons of time, from the ancient Polynesians to now. It takes, it's taken many turns, some for the better, some not so much. Aquaculture, by definition, refers to the breeding, rearing, and harvesting of plants and animals in all types of water environments, including ponds, rivers, lakes, and the ocean. The U.S. imports over 90% of its seafood, about half of which is farmed. While aquaculture globally has grown dramatically over the last 30 years, in the U.S., production has remained low. While aquaculture remains a controversial topic amidst fisheries management and sustaining wild populations, there is a role to play for producing the ever-growing demand for seafood. Green Wave is a nonprofit that not only produces food, but does so in what's called a restorative model. Today, we'll be talking with Bren Smith, the executive director of Green Wave, a nonprofit organization that's working to support a new generation of ocean farmers to restore ecosystems, mitigate climate change, and build a blue-green economy. So stick around here to Ocean Currents. We have a full show. We'll be back in just a minute. You're tuned to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and today we're talking about a restorative model of aquaculture with Bren Smith from Green Wave. And Bren, I want to welcome you to KWMR. You're live on the air. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for calling in. So I want to just start with finding out how you got to aquaculture. You started out in commercial fishing. What brought you to aquaculture? Yeah, so yeah, I was born and raised in Newfoundland and, uh, you know, dropped out of high school when I was 14 and turned into a commercial fisherman and, you know, fished all over the globe. But I ended up in the in the Bering Sea fishing for cod and crab. Like, you know, I absolutely love that job. It was the, I really miss it um, so much. It was just, uh, you know, being in 40-foot seas, being in the belly of a boat with a bunch of other people working 30-hour shifts. It's like a great life for a young kid. But uh, the cod stocks crashed back in Newfoundland while I was working in the Bering Sea, and it was sort of a wake-up call for a whole generation of us trying to figure out, you know, okay, this is not sustainable, this, this sort of factory trawling on, on the seas. What's the future? And so I started doing aquaculture in northern Canada on the salmon farms because that was supposed to be the answer to overfishing and job creation, stuff like that. So what brought you to starting your own model of aquaculture? Yeah, so, you know, the think back on the days of the, the salmon farms back in the 90s, and essentially we were running, you know, Iowa pig farms, 
at sea, all the things we know. You know, aquaculture is actually probably the worst brand name in the grocery store at this point. And it's made incredible improvements, right? In wild fish, meal usage in, in, in feed, as far as uh, use of pesticides, antibiotics, it's made real leaps. But I decided I want to come at it from a totally different direction and sort of ask the oceans, what, are, what can the oceans provide? What are, what's the most sustainable food we can grow? And then change tastes. So I mean, the, 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 so one of the challenge, one, I think one of the missteps of aquaculture was it first started growing what people wanted to eat rather than what the ecology of the ocean could provide, and that was salmon and tunas and things like that. So we're coming the other direction. So I headed after I left the salmon farms. I ended up in Long Island Sound and became an oyster farmer, and that was sort of the beginning of boutique oystering. They had a new program to open up shellfishing grounds uh, to young fishers to track them into back in the industry. So I made myself as an oysterman. I did that for a, a bunch of years, and it was a big shift, quite honestly. Like the thrill of hunting on the ocean was gone. It was kind of boring. I feel like a you know, an arugula farmer just always knowing where I'm going to go, which is a half mile out floating around all day. It's a real sort of psychic shift for a fisherman. The uh, local oyster farms around here might have a challenge with you on that <laughs> in terms of excitement. It's such a beautiful place to be. We have a lot of oyster farms here on Tomales Bay and in this region yeah. overall. Well, no, it's, I mean, it's beautiful, but it, it really is a change of an identity. If you come out of a, the commercial fisheries and, you know, on the wild seas chasing, hunting, I mean, seafood is our last wild food. And we over time, we're going to say goodbye to that, and that's really heartbreaking. And the question for all of us, which I, I hadn't thought of when we were moving into this new model, but how do we keep that sort of culture and the soul of a fish, of, of, um, of fishing alive? What's that core component? And I think it's, it, it is the excitement, but we're going to lose that because we have to become farmers. Instead, what we can keep, and I tell this to my fishermen when, when we go through the training programs, which is you get to own your own boat, succeed and fail on your own terms, you've no boss, a self-directed life, and you still get the pride of helping feed the country. And, you know, we think you know, to be a fisherman, there are certain professions in the country, coal miners, steel workers, I think farmers, fishermen that come with an entire culture, sort of jobs you can write and sing songs about. And so the question for the transition of our oceans for wild fishery into ocean farming is can we keep these sort of beautiful, meaningful jobs that uh, we just love so much. Yeah, thanks for explaining. So tell us, what is Green Wave? What is the mission of your organization? And we'll talk a little bit about, too, this restorative model. But let's first just start with what is Green Wave all about? Yes, so Green Wave is designed to help replicate, and as you were saying, the intro train a new generation of ocean farmers. And we do two sorts of things. One, we do training and education. And our training and education program includes you get two years of support, you get small grants, you get access to free or low-cost seed for your farms, you get gear from Patagonia. And we agree on our for-profit side to buy 80% of what you grow. And so that's our training program. And then the other two things Greenway does is policy work, trying to figure out how do we protect our commons, how do we work with stakeholders so that ocean farming really has a light footprint both aesthetically and physically. And then the R and D side. How do we stay how do we 
do research to stay ahead of the climate curve? How do we develop solar processing, you know, ocean combines and new hatchery technology that reduces energy costs? So you're really looking at a lot of main components of a successful model here, both for the environment and for profit and for producing food, which I think is different than a lot of other systems. Can you talk about what the restorative model is? Because I think that also helps put it all together. So there's so many people doing amazing work around the country, around the world, and lots of pieces. What we tried to do was really simplify it and make it accessible so it could be replicated. And we came at it from a polyculture approach. So much of ocean farming, pretty much 100%, is a monoculture model. So we switched to polyculture, and what we do is we grow a range of species, seaweeds and shellfish using the entire water, water column. Uh, so we grow clams, oysters, mussels, scallops, and then two types of seaweed, a kelp and a grassalary. And we also harvest salt in these same 20-acre um, areas. And it's restorative for a couple reasons. One, for the environment. You know, we soak up five times more carbon than land-based plants. Our kelp is called the sequoia of the sea. Actually, the New Yorker called it the culinary equivalent of the electric car. We soak up nitrogen through our oysters and other shellfish. Of course, as you all know, over-nitrification is a root cause of uh, dead zone. We also work with the Department of Energy and some folks around the world in the early stages of, of biofuels. And then we also use it for land-based inputs, so animal feeds and fertilizers. If you feed cattle a majority diet of seaweed, you get up to a 90% reduction in methane. And what's key here in terms of the, the sustainable restorative piece is we grow zero input food, so we don't require any fresh water, no feed, no fertilizers, and this makes it the most sustainable form of food production on the planet. And in the era of climate change, if water prices go up, feed fertilizer prices go up, and energy prices go up, zero input food will also be the most affordable food on the planet. So the, the economics of climate change will drive us towards zero zero input food, and luckily, you know, as, as um, former fishermen and farmers were able to grow. When you were talking about training for people to to be able to start growing a range of species, how much do you take into account the, the actual region that you're in? I'm, I know you're based in Long Island right now. Do you have farmers all around the United States or some different bioregions? Because I'm thinking that the species you are able to grow probably vary based on the region. Absolutely. And we really need some serious, great scientific research behind this. This is why it's so important that whether it's the Sea Grant or the NOAA Labs really stay alive. They're, they're, they're absolutely central to the, those of us that are creating, trying to create this new industry, a new, new um, source of jobs in the U.S. So the way we, we I'm mean, actually in Connecticut, Green Wave, and outside of New Haven, and we have, uh, we only grow native species. And our farm network right now is from Maine, um, all, it's throughout New England, Maine, all the way down to Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and we're just starting. In New York, we have a first farm going through its permitting processes in uh, Santa Barbara, and then we have a, a small cluster of farms forming in the Pacific Northwest. But the key is, like, I know what to grow in my area, but there are 10,000 edible plants in the ocean and a couple hundred kinds of shellfish. As soon as you look at your local East ecosystem, get with the scientists, get with the chefs, and ask the question, what are all the kinds of restorative species we can grow and that we can eat? 
the possibilities are kind of are limitless. You know, the doom and gloom of climate change disrupting the food system, which is all very true, is a flip side, which our oceans are this incredible bounty where we can grow whole new crops, new arugulas, new lettuces, corns, tomatoes that, you know, we've never seen before. And then this new climate cuisine actually for the chefs and the, the home cooks becomes pretty exciting. So how about the regulatory angle? I mean, we have a lot of marine protected areas around here, and I'm, I'm not so familiar with the amount of marine protected areas on the East Coast. But how do you work with the local regulations in terms of identifying an area to potentially farm, and what types of regulations might you experience as a farmer? Yeah, I mean, the first way to deal with, I mean, our oceans are these beautiful, pristine places, and we need to keep them that way. And really what we've tried to do is take all the lessons from industrial agriculture, all the lessons of industrial aquaculture, and not repeat them. So part of the uh, issue around, around permitting and legislation is actually farm design. So I, when you come out to our farm, there's kind of very little to see because it sits way below the surface. Anybody can boat, fish, and swim in our farms. They're community, not privatized spaces. People dive through our kelp forests. They tie it the best commercial fishing in the entire area surrounding our farm. People you know, surround it literally with gill nets. The other thing is, because we're vertical, we have such a small, we've got a much smaller footprint. My farm used to be 100 acres, now it's down to 20 acres, and I can grow way more food than, than ever before. And then the lease rights are key, because we don't own that water or that patch of water. All we own is the right to grow shellfish and seaweed. So we own a process, not a property right, and it's up for renewal every five years. So the, le- the community has a lever of democratic control. And then when I die on my ha- boat happily one day, that lease goes back to the town or state. That said, I think there's a lot of work needs to be done on ocean planning. We need to get together with our wind farm companies, embed our 3D farms in the wind farms. We need to make sure shoreline uh, residents and, you know, recreation and commercial boaters aren't interrupted. There is one thing I'd say about marine zones, huge advocate of marine zones. They're really important conservation zones. The, the, the issue is, is that if you were, if you could set, you could set aside the entire world's ocean as a marine park, and in the era of climate change, it's still going to die, right? Unless we have strategies to address climate change in our waters, a marine park strategy won't work. And this is, so in a way, a conservation-only only strategy is almost like a Teddy Roosevelt-type Republican environmental policy and not uh, sort of up to times where, where, where they are. Conservationists, to some degree, you know, they're good friends. I don't mean to be overly critical, but are their own sort of climate deniers because they, so they see, they know that it's real, but they haven't accepted the real implications. We believe that the vision is marine parks with 3D ocean farms embedded in our in the marine zones, which breathe life back into our oceans, keep those conservation parks alive. And unless we have those engines of restoration embedded or surrounding the marine parks, it's um, you know we're just not prepared for the the future of uh, uh, of climate change. I hear what you're saying about marine protected areas and this need for multi-use and adapting as we are in this age of climate change. And I think we're all quite in that stage right now of how to move forward. And and we'll have to see how our local coastal plans and state plans and federal plans can adapt if they can go as quickly as, as we need. 
I, one of the things I'm hearing really loudly is this the farming of algae and this 3D structure, vertical farming. And I'm wondering if you could just verbally describe what that looks like from seafloor to surface in terms sure. of all those species and how do you do it? Sure. I mean, so the great thing about the ocean is you don't have to fight gravity. So it just makes great business sense uh, from the farmer perspective to use that to our advantage. So I, I imagine an underwater garden where we just have anchors that are hurricane-proof on the edges of the farm, then, then ropes vertically upwards, you know, to the surface with a buoy. And then about eight feet below the surface, we have horizontal lines. And so a simple, simple scaffolding system. And from there, we grow our kelp vertically downwards. We have our scallops in lantern nets. We have mussels in mussel socks. And then down below that on the sea floor. We've got our oysters in oyster cages, and then down in the mud, we have our clams, which we harvest, you know, like between the rows of, of kelp and other, other shellfish. So it's, you know, multi-species, a sea basket approach. From a farmer's perspective, the more species you can grow, the, it reduces the risk, right? It spreads the risk. So if one crop fails, we're um, uh, have one to replace. The reason... You know, I'm no big kelp fan. I'm never going to eat seaweed. That's not my, it's not my culture. But from a farming perspective, kelp is so fast growing that it becomes the economic engine of the farm, right? It's one of the fastest growing plant, uh, plants on earth. So the shellfish are great regional, support regional markets real well, but the kelp is like the soy of the sea. It's in everything with food, fertilizers, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals. So we can weave it through our, you know, food and other other sectors. So one of the um, efforts that you have with your organization is to to kind of do market development. And where, how is that going with kelp and other seaweeds? I know here on the West Coast we have somewhat limited harvesting of sea, seaweed and it's marketed in, in stores, but not quite on the scale that it sounds like we could potentially go in, in terms of in the restaurants. You know, it's a very limited market so far. So I'm curious how you are marketing seaweed and, and doing research and development with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been, I was worried that it was going to take 20 years to figure out the market, like how to get Americans to eat this disgusting stuff, how to move shellfish and sea greens to the center of the plate and wild fish to the edges. That was like the, the supply we figured out. We open source the model at a farm. We reduce the cost so anybody with 20 acres in a boat and $20,000 can start their own farm, be up and running. The market side, you know, we, of course, we, we leaned heavily on us on storied food, on social media. But what I did wrong was start in the boutique market. You know, I did kelp cocktail events in New York City and sort of all these you know, the hipster things. And that was, a, that, was, that was a mistake because we need to go to – Scale, right? Our farmers markets, things like that, they're actually not viable at any scale. Most 91% of land-based farmers lost money last year. Right? We need to figure out actually how to scale the new food economy in a way that's viable. So we, what we did was we started working not with seafood chefs um, because they brought the same sort of sensibilities of wrapping it around fish and seaweed salads, things like that. We didn't move into Asian markets. We decided, okay, what we need to do is esushify this. And we started working with chefs that knew nothing about seafood. So we worked with Brooks Headley at Superiority Burger in New York City. 
we gave them our kelp noodles, which is a our main product we we make. And he he first thing he came up with was barbecue kelp noodles with uh, parsnips and breadcrumbs. <laughs> Sells out every night. You begin seeing it as a vegetable, not as a seafood, and it completely flips. The other thing is we work with large institutions, so we're working. We work with Google, we work with Patagonia, universities that create um, to a large scale stable markets for our farmers' crops. The, just one thing about two things about scale. One is, you know, we're able to produce a huge amount of food in, in per acre. You know, ten to twenty five tons of seaweed per acre. If you were to take a network of our farms totaling the size of Washington State, you could technically feed the world. But we don't want thousand acre farms. What we want is network production. So the the Greenway's vision is of twenty five to fifty farms dotting our coastline, surrounded by conservation zones, a seafood hub, and a hatchery located in sort of struggling and poor uh, shoreline communities, a ring of big institutional buyers, the Googles, the Patagonias, and then a ring of entrepreneurs doing value-added products. Then you take that green wave reef and you replicate it every 200 miles. And I think that's the, that's, hopefully that's the future of, for us, ocean farming, of having a sort of a light touch um, on our oceans, but actually scale and create you know, thousands and thousands of jobs and really try to uh, lift communities out of poverty. How does the health of the surrounding waters of each farm affect product? I know, you know we have a lot of red tide here, more uh, toxic algal, algal blooms on the rise and warming waters. And have you encountered issues with rapid changes in any of these areas? And what are some of the challenges that come with that? Yeah, I mean, one of my challenges is I'm getting different growth rates on the same plots year to year. I mean, radically different. Just our kelp alone will go from 20 feet to 3 feet year to year in the exact same spot. It drives me crazy, and that's why, you know, working with NOAA, we've got a really close relationship with the NOAA labs here in Milford, Connecticut, which is the birth of shellfishing and shellfish agriculture in America back in the 30s to really figure out what to grow where and how to you know, stay ahead of that climate curve. The pollution question, which I think is is a, an, an important one, is we see it. We see two kinds of farming. We farm for food and we farm for pollution. So our food, where we're growing food, our waters, it's the most regulated, just like all the oysters, oystermen growing stuff out on your coast, it's the most regulated food in the country. We want to keep it that way. You wish your arugulas and sprouts were, were as um, traceable as our shellfish. Then we also grow in polluted areas like the Bronx River, and we have plans in many other places to just farm for ecosystem services, pulling that nitrogen, pulling that carbon, pulling those heavy metals out of the system so that we're cleaning waterways. And those crops can either stay and just uh, be used to rebuild reefs, or the seaweeds themselves can go potentially into the biofuel sector. Wow, that's fascinating. So do you actually work with scientists in areas like that to to monitor the uptake and changes in the water quality with that system in place? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what one new we work closely with the University of Connecticut, with Woods Hole, Yale here. We've got new relationships with the University of Santa Barbara, uh, Scripps, places like that. One of the exciting new things we're doing is working with the EPA and some of the companies developing new sensor technology to use our farms as data platforms. So let's take this new affordable 
sensor technology embedded in our farms. And then all we have 15 farms now scattered up and down the coast. We can use those to extract data about climate change, about pollution, about nitrogen carbon, or the ecosystem services our farms are providing so, so the farmers can benefit on carbon trading markets, on nitrogen trading markets. And also, I'd hope that our farmers at some point actually can sell that data to the scientific community because it's way cheaper for us to collect it on our farms than for scientists to set up new farms. So there's just, as soon as you begin, as soon as you sort of wade out into these waters, the oceans are a blank slate and we can just rethink every, we can just think through all the different levels and potential uses of our farms. It, it gets pretty exciting. I see how your partnership with NOAA Sea Grant is very important because that's a big thing of what Sea Grant does and working with fishing communities and and scaling up and and also doing some of the science in some of these areas. Uh, we wouldn't exist without the Sea Grant. I mean, that the Sea Grant sits at that place of applied science, of taking some basic science and early science that comes out of the universities, improving it, and then getting it out to folks like me that can create jobs, businesses, things like that. The Connecticut Sea Grant here has just been just amazing. The NOAA Lab, where we actually have a green wave hatchery, we got invited in to, to grow our, you know, our seed stocks there. I, honestly, you know, I'm a high school dropout, don't know anything about science, but I do know that I wouldn't be here today without, without that help. That's fantastic to hear. I know a lot of people are going to be speaking about Sea Grant much more in the coming months and other divisions of NOAA, and I, I hope they do talk about the value that they bring, uh, that organization agency brings. And we are going to come up on a break in just a minute here, but I can squeeze in one more question. This goes back to talking about the areas that are kind of polluted and farming, and you're talking about the algae and, and growing kelp and harvesting for, to, for fertilizer, for plants. Science-wise, do... Do algaes absorb those toxic chemicals, and do they pass them on as they as you process that kelp to become fertilizer, or does it somehow act as a buffer? I, I don't really know that much about seaweed and how it works like that. Yeah, it's a great question. So the the kelp we, seaweeds we grow in polluted areas does doesn't go into fertilizer. I see that as the food system. So everything we're growing in clean, pristine waters, that can go into animal feed, fertilizers, you know, human food, sort of, you know, um, up and down that chain. The, 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 what we grow in polluted waters would go into biofuel, which is key. So it stays out of the food system, food system completely. How much biofuel market is there right now? So the trouble is, is it's really expensive to produce. So it's not viable. Department of Energy has a 30, new $30 million program to, to figure out how to both scale and, on, and deal with sort of the choke points, technological choke points to scale up uh, and make biofuel viable. I'll say that, you know, Europe, kelp in, I think it's England, um, kelp is part of their 50-year energy plan. Some early studies that was done by the Department of Energy, I think a decade ago, it, that you could get five times more ethanol yield than corn per acre. But it's still expensive to process. We need, we, you know, we, we, to move at, at the biofuel level, I think, you know, we're, we're a decade or two away, but we have the machinery to do it. We can make it. And so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an experimental place that we really want to push forward. That sounds great. Sounds like you're right on the cutting edge of helping that to really go forward. So that's mm -hmm. awesome. We'll be back in just a little minute. We're going to take a little short musical break. We'll come back and continue talking about Green Wave. 
Bryn, you're back live on the air with us. Thanks. So, you know, I'm thinking about, do fishermen come to you or do you recruit fishermen? And I'm curious, why are they coming to you? I mean, are they coming to you the same way you started this up? Or what, tell me some stories about some of the folks that are coming to you to help get, get, in, get involved in this. Yeah, so when I first started doing this, you know, I was getting laughed off the water. You know, I couldn't hang out in the same bars I used to because I figured get beat up. Yeah, and, you know, I had, to, I had to go to the arugula farmer bars. But over what's happened is, I mean, in a couple of trends. One is, you know, we're running out of fish. The U.S. fisheries are extremely well um, managed, but uh, more and more farmers are, are um, uh, I mean, more and more fishermen need to diversify. So we now have requests to start farms in every coastal state in North America and 20 countries around the world. We're a small organization. The demand is just stunning. Some of the farmers uh, we have, we've got 11 generation fishermen out of Rhode Island, third generation lobstermen. But we also have, interestingly enough, a lot of land-based farmers, young kids that can't afford to build, to, to get land because it's so expensive. But here with, you know, 20 grand and a boat, we can get them up uh, started the first year. We also have, we have a lot of uh, women coming in, indigenous folks. So it's, I, I think it's because of this low barrier to entry, minimal skill requirements, minimal capital costs, so it's sort of the nail salon model of the sea, we're attracting more and more folks. We never, we've never had to advertise or anything like that. Unfortunately, we spend too much of our time saying no to people because we just don't have the resources to run enough programs. I mean, just in California, I think we have over 150, a list of 150 farmers that want to start right away. Now, the regulatory you know, there needs to be real work on what I say, legalizing the other weed, you know, because it's legal to grow uh, seaweed in a lot of states, including California at this point. You know, they're as far as uh, fishers, they're just they're 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 poised and ready. This radio station's on the West Coast, California. Is there a farm in the Bay Area or near, you know, anywhere in California that people can see that's been supported by Green Wave? There's one in Santa Barbara that's not in the water yet that where will be our first multi-species farm. It's the last leg of, of the permitting process. It's a, it's a guy, Dan Marquez, fifth generation out of Santa Barbara. Just brother was a commercial fisherman. He's our, he's our first sort of green wave storyteller and ocean farmer and, and ambassador out in California. Do you ever have people come to you that are that haven't been commercial fishermen before that they're just young and really motivated by this model and want to get involved early on in their in their career? Yeah, I mean that's the the land based the, the young land based land based farmers are a huge sector of that. I've got a new kid did eight years on a dairy farm has just been looking for land forever. It's you know three on three hundred thousand bucks for him to buy the land he needs, and he came to us, and now he's farming. But then there are endless kids out of college and high school kids. There's just a lot of energy. And, I, you know, I think the reason why is that it's giving people a sense of agency. So you don't need to be a Google or an Amazon in order to build your own farm, be feeding your local community, but also participating in helping address some of the major problems we face, whether it's food security or climate change. So you can actually be, you know, you can make a difference, but with very low overhead and it just feels, you know, it feels possible. What's your biggest limitation at this point in terms of being able to help all these people that are wanting to get started and, and dive into doing this? 
Yeah, I think there are three. One is resources. You know, we just, you know, getting enough money for our training programs and, and, you know, folks really do need two years of support so they become, you know, good, consistent, high-quality growers. The second, I think, is the science, really figuring out what to grow where, and that goes, that's all the way from hatchery to harvest, time, species selection, things like that. We figured it out here, but I think, you know, we've got farmers that want to start in you know, the, the, the Gulf Coast and all, all different places, and it's not clear yet what mix of species are the most, the most viable. And then the last one is, is permitting. We've had huge success here out in New England because we just have a lot of support that, you know, we've been writing legislation state to state. Our legislation here was called the Seaweed Jobs Bill, of all things. And so, but as we expand and create these new reefs, there needs to be sort of, you know, new legislation, a rethinking of how we use our ocean resources and making sure it's, we bring everybody on board together. Start small. You know, our model, what I did, I just put two experimental lines in the water, grew all my species, invited the community out, invited legislators out, environmentalists, just to sort of see and learn, create the coalition that then can go, that then move forward to create a to, to uh, really support it as a as, as a um, you know a new model of aquaculture. It seems like a great marketing tool for the restaurants in terms of mar- you know selling a product like that that is so local and adding stewardship to the environment and having that full the three R's coming all together in, in their own hometown. Are you seeing that from the the restaurants? Yeah, I mean we just had an incredible. I mean it's hard being a chef. It's hard to stay ahead of the curve. Chefs, so any new local crops that they can use, a lot of interest. We just had, you know, Rene Renzepi, David Chang, you know, top chefs from around the world out on the farm this summer. They were part of the Yale Leadership uh, Institute. So, and uh, huge interest there. Well, it was so interesting, you know, folks really know their seafood and they really know their seaweeds. They had never tasted seaweeds like this because of the marwar, right? We grow in the southern region of Kelp. Uh, and so our kelp is a very mild taste. It's got a nice al dente mouthfeel. And so um, they were shocked how it didn't taste like what they think of as, as seaweed. So as we're working with more and more chefs, I think they, they're bringing their creativity into it to make this delicious food. Like it, this is either going to be like we're going to be eating it because of the economics of it. There's, no, I, there's just no question. The question is, is it going to be delicious and beautiful or is it going to be like being force-fed? cod liver oil. I think that's where we're at with climate cuisine. Is it going to be bugs and lab meat, or is it going to be beautiful things that we're able to grow locally and, you know, sustain communities? Fantastic. Bren, thank you so much for sharing all this information and knowledge. Are there any last pieces you'd want to share with listeners? And please include ways that people can learn more about Green Wave. Yeah. So the the 30,000-foot view is that this is our chance to do food right. You know, oceans are a blank slate. We can weave things like food justice into the DNA of the new ocean economy and really take those lessons learned from land and ocean industrialized model and just do it right this time. And I think that's exciting. We need all hands on deck because we need scientists, students, other farmers, we need chefs, we need everybody. So this is a, we really want folks to come and, and make our model better and, you know, and join the movement. You can get hold of us through uh, greenwave.org, G 
G-R-E-E-N-W-A-V-E.org. And we've got a place for people to sign up for farm as farmers, as volunteers, fellows, things like that. And we'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your success to date. And it's really exciting to hear a model that takes into account everything with job training and climate and food and uh, small footprint. And I really enjoyed hearing all about the different models that you're, you're working to scale up. So best of luck to you. Well, thanks so much. It was an honor to be on. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Your folks that are tuning in, this is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I just was speaking with Bren Smith from Green Wave, talking about a restorative model of aquaculture using a 3D model of vertical farming in the ocean. And very cutting-edge time for thinking about food models and um, a way to mitigate climate change by growing species that absorb carbon and also take out nutrients out of the water that are excess and recycling the product to land and also to the to the soil. So keep in touch with that, greenwave.org. And I hope we'll be hearing more about them in the future. This is my 99th radio program, which means April is my 100th radio program. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov. You can also tweet at OceanKWMR. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean bay or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on KWMR Community Radio for West Marin. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.